Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me! I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us once again, our TV critic, Sonia Soraya. Hi. Sonia, you thought you'd gotten rid of us after the Emmys, but here you are again. There is still TV. (laughs) There's so much TV. Um, We're having this problem week after week right now where suddenly there's a ton of stuff to talk about, even though, as we well know, there's nothing playing in theaters, really. Uh, There's a lot of TV shows. There's a lot of movies coming directly to VOD. And then in the case of uh, what we're going to close out the show with, there are huge movies with anniversaries happening right now that uh, give us a lot to talk about. So we're going to talk about the anniversary of The Social Network. We're going to talk about Emily in Paris, Haunting a Bly Manor. Uh, A whole bunch of other stuff. But first, I wanted to do a check-in on movie theaters, which are usually a major interest of ours. Um, Since we recorded last week's episode, No Time to Die, the Bond movie, Dune have both moved out of 2020. Was there something else? Wonder Woman's still hanging in there, but uh, the picture's becoming pretty clear that all the giant movies are leaving. And Regal has announced that they will not reopen their theaters again this year. Um, It all seems like part of a story that we've been talking about for weeks, about how movie going is just not going to be able to come back while the pandemic is what it is. But anything surprising or especially dismaying to you guys amid all this news coming in? Well, I mean, it's sad. I think the Regal Cinemas had partially reopened in the States where they could, and then they've shut back down, right? Mm -hmm. And I was reading something, and there's a British company that they're affiliated with that's also kind of doing the same thing. Cineworld, yeah. Yeah. um, That, like, in the U.S., that's 40,000 people who work there. You know, yeah. and it's just like, that's, that's, I mean, regardless of whether we can go, not go see Dune, like, it actually has, like, a significant impact on people's lives, which is uh, really dismaying. And yeah, I, I think that maybe it would have been best if we had in the summer, you know, all collectively as a an industry or people adjacent to the industry like we are, like, taking a sober look at things and been like, you know what, this is not happening in 2020. Um, yeah. Because this start, stop, start, stop. Oh, this came out. It didn't do so well. Like, okay, pull all the, everything else. It's just created this weirdly, this sense of kind of uncertainty that obviously is coming also from government. But it's frustrating. And I hear that similar things are about to be announced with Broadway. And, you know, I just think that if we had known six, you know, however many months ago that like, don't help hold out hope for the rest of the year. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> just focus on 2021. I think maybe psychologically, we'd all be a little better off to say nothing, obviously, of the people who needed to go back to work, which so it's a well, really tricky thing. Yeah, I agree. I both agree and disagree. Like, I think that 
it behooved the studios and the various places to like at, to try as much as like I didn't want to go see a movie in the movie theater. Like, I don't think you can shut down a chain and say 40,000 people don't go back to work until you've at least seen if there is some version of this that could be functional. And then, you know, I mean, like, I I feel like I call, always kind of thought it was foolhardy, but, uh, you know, I can understand why from, like, as a boss, you have to say to your employees, listen, listen, man, we tried. We really tried. And not to, you know, to say nothing of, like, wanting to keep your business afloat. Like, I understand it. I agree with you, Richard. It feel, it feel like a real, like, roller coaster of emotions and expectations and trying to understand what, what feels safe and what doesn't for people. Um, 2020, the hits keep coming. I mean, I... I don't know what it's like to work in a movie theater or manage a movie theater, but I hope there's at least some kind of relief to know that, like, if you're regal and you decide to close, like, there's not going to be some movie that comes out in December that will make you regret not being ready for it. Like, it is, you know, Wonder Woman aside, which is still hanging on to its Christmas release, like, it's over for the year. And you can at least, like, regroup and not spend the money to have your theater open and not have to, like, worry about putting your employees at risk and, you know, wait for things to get better, which at this point, it's it feels really hard to know when that will be. Yeah, and this also gives, um, in the case of Dune, it gives Denis Villeneuve time to edit Jar Jar Binks out of the movie, which I, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. when mm-hmm. he popped up in the trailer, I was like, that's a mistake. <laughs> so yeah. but the, gonna... the butthole worms will stay, though, right? Yeah, like those yeah, are yeah. More, more worms. Those are integral to, to the Dune-iverse. <laughs> I have been, I've been thinking about that in terms of a lot of movies. I'm like, all right, all right, every single filmmaker with a movie done uh, or, um, or at least in the edit or whatever, like you have uh, extra time now. Please, please fix anything that might be lingering. I don't know. Like, you know, if I I were, I would be tinkering like for the next uh, year if if it were me. So perfect movies in 2021. That's all we'll accept. (laughs) That's all I'll accept. That's all. That's all I will accept. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely going to be presented with a, you know, provided all these movies come out next year as planned, like a real uh, clusterfuck of Oscar contenders. Um, But that seems like a, a good problem to have and a bridge we can cross when we come to it. I think that um, I'm given up hoping on the French Dispatch coming this year for this year's Oscar race. It seems like I, there's like a rumor going around that it might open Cannes next year. And Cannes seems like something you can actually assume will happen. Um, so, yeah, the, as we said last week, it does seem like the Oscar race is uh, semi-set in stone, um, depending on what other surprises like Netflix or someone else might have. Mank. It's wild. Mank. <laughs> it's wild. Mank. Okay, so pivoting back to the things that you can see. The New York Film Festival has been available to more people than it might normally otherwise be because it's been online uh, and has shown some films that will be available um, to watch from your homes later this year, including uh, Steve McQueen's Small Axe series, which is an Amazon series. It is films, but they are of a series. Um, It's a distinction that's a little hard to keep track of. Um, I'm just bringing it up to say that um, Richard's going to be reviewing it in November when it comes to Amazon Prime. So we're going to save our larger conversation about it then. Um, But if you have been following the coverage of it from New York Film Festival, there's these films with great performances from people like Letitia Wright and John Boyega. It is a TV series. I've confirmed with the reps behind it that it will be eligible for television at like the Emmy or at the, um, the Golden Globes and SAG Awards this year and the Emmys in some distant future, which to me is a little disappointing. Like I would love a Letitia Wright Oscar campaign, but for the awards nerds out there, hopefully all of you are listening to this. Um, that's where you're going to expect to see it. So we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, I can't wait to review six or something or maybe Sonia you're gonna do it like tv slash movies I mean it's it's just like a huge project and it's 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 hard to know how to like cover it which has been interesting watching people do that from like New York Film Festival um but regardless of what it is or how it's being presented like I think it's gonna be one of the things of the year for sure yeah Sonia as a tv critic do you feel um do you feel bad like territorial about all these film critics like trying to steal small (laughs) x from you or is it uh (laughs) oh absolutely yeah (laughs) It's it's one of those things. I mean, I, I'm I'm kidding, but it's one of those things that uh, it does sort of seem like the studio, you know, the studio and and maybe McQueen himself kind of want to have it both ways. You know, yeah. they want to make films and they also want it to be a TV series. So even the fact that they debuted it at New York Film Festival and they debuted uh, three of the five uh, installments, but they've uh, what my understanding is that they've told all of the critics that they want 
the whole thing to be reviewed in mass, which makes it sound like a TV show. Yeah. Um, and Except it will be there's only three of them. So it's right. you can review three fifths of it and the other two will come in November. It's funny. I mean, it makes me feel like, oh, well, we've decided this is too good to be a TV series. So we need to elevate <laughs> yeah. it to a, to a film series. Um, I just, I, I mean, I'm just excited to watch it. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, how they all work together. And it would be kind of funny if film critics and TV critics had like wildly differing takes on it. But I, I, I sort of get the impression we're all going to like it. That's that's my impression based on yeah. the buzz. I would be extremely interested to hear you as like someone who thinks about how TV series hold together, um, how it feels as television, since I've watched two of them that were at the New York Film Festival and they're really different with obvious thematic parallels. Um, but yeah, when we see the whole thing, um, obviously... We'll have Sonia and Richard come battle it out um, on this show when we can we talk should do about all five. Turf of those, when uh, when Jesse Green started uh, reviewing theater at the Times, him and Brantley, who's now retiring, they did a couple reviews. I think for like Sexy Oklahoma, they did like dialogue reviews, and it really mm-hmm. did not work as a format. But we can still try it, Sonia. I'd be yeah. I mean, I'd be happy to. It's kind of it's it's funny to try to to reconcile two different people's voices in one thing, but at the very, at the very least for entertainment. Yeah. I feel like yeah. Richard should review it as a film and you should review it as a TV series and there see if go. there's like a difference. <laughs> if one review leaves the station traveling 60 miles an hour. <laughs> Um, we're talking about something that is explicitly television, with no doubt about it. Um, Sonia, you um, have reviewed The Good Lord Bird, a Showtime limited series, not an ongoing series. That it's a mini, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. funny how it's like should be straightforward, but I still can't keep track of it. Um, no, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know a ton about it other than that it's like Ethan Hawke as John Brown, which is fascinating. So, um, so tell me more about it. So it's adapted from the James McBride novel. And it's seven. It's seven episodes. Um, Ethan Hawke created it, and I, I think um, Bloomhouse um, ended up collaborating with him on it. And the name of the sh- the writer showrunner is Mark uh, Richard, who's actually also a novelist, which uh, makes for a very interesting uh, makes for a very interesting adaptation. I mean, the center point, the center focus is Ethan Hawke as John Brown. He's incredible. Um, and it's told not through his perspective, but through the point of view of a teenage boy uh, nicknamed Onion, who also at some point John Brown mistakes this boy, uh, whose whose actual name is Henry, uh, for Henrietta, and then for the entire series, this boy has to dress as a, as a girl in order to like fit in with John Brown's. And 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 it, it's such a funny, weird thing that. It's a funny, weird mistake at the beginning, but it also shows you just how difficult it is to, like, make John Brown see anyone's point of view except his own. <laughs> um, he's a, he's a, he's visionary, and he's sort of terrifying. He, like, you know, in, like, the first episode, he, like, picks up a bunny and, like, is, like, staring at it and is, like, do you have a great soul? Like, do this <laughs> rabbit. And he'll, like, occasionally throughout the series pick up turtles and, like, stare them in the face. And um, he gives these these sermons that are, like, super rambly and long. And John Brown's, like, not that tethered to reality. But on the other hand, he is so clear-eyed about the fact that it is the late 1850s. They're in the frontier. Slavery should be illegal. Slavery is a sin. He's, like, very crystal clear on that. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, kind of juxtaposition uh between you the audience being like this guy like does not really seem totally okay but he's correct like we cannot Mm -hmm. argue with the fact that he is the only person that is correct about this about this institution and then you know through onion's eyes who's 15 what happens in the first episode uh without spoiling too much is that he's like abruptly freed by john brown And um, that's, you know, on one hand, great, he's not a slave anymore, but he's a 15-year-old orphan. He has no idea what to do with himself now that he's like a free man, free woman, I suppose. And I think like the difficulty in the logistics of what John Brown is imagining is like this interesting thread that runs through the story. So it's interesting because it's funny. 
it's got this droll humor to it that is sort of reminiscent of of like succession or something like that mm. where there are like very high stakes but then there's these very funny uh things that happen and and Ethan Hawken is really good at managing that tone um like the higher the stakes are the funnier he seems to be with his uh with his delivery but at the same time the story meanders a little bit Another critic described it as kind of a picaresque uh, for the first uh, four episodes, where you're really just getting like an idea of what 1858, 1859 is like. And then Harper's Ferry, you know, historic moment takes up the last three episodes. So um, if you're like a fan of this period, a lot of details, I mean, like a, not a fan of history buff, if you're a fan of the Civil War, um, if you're a history buff, a lot of moments are going to really like stand out to you as like crucial turning points and things like that. They were very careful about things like that. As someone a little more naive about the story, there were times where I was like, what is happening here? But um, just the fact that Ethan Hawke is doing this performance makes it really worthwhile. I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I like wept at the end because, you know, I mean, if you know, if you know your history well enough, you know that John Brown dies at the end of the story. And uh, it's so moving, both his confusion about the world and why it can't catch up to his vision. And also like his complete confidence and faith in America that it's going to be better one day. Mm. And that was just not something that I have been able to feel lately. So <laughs> it was really, it's very timely too, to see his sort of crusading and his optimism. Yeah, I was going to ask about the the timeliness of it because I was thinking about with Antebellum last month. There was it came in from a lot of criticism of just like the idea of setting something in the time of slavery. Um, and in Antebellum, there's a twist involved, but you know, like what slavery era narratives do we really need to see? And and what you're saying about this idea of optimism for America despite its horribleness, like is, is that what makes this feel like something that needs to, to exist in 2020? I mean, I think. I think yes, because I, I would also say that like it's not a slavery narrative that like leans into torture porn, you know? It's not it's not proving to you that slavery is bad. It sort of comes from the perspective of like, you know this already, and every individual enslaved person that you meet is very different. They have different stories, they have different reasoning for or different rationale for why they are either trying to escape or not trying to escape. And the, you you meet a lot, especially in the second episode of Enslaved People, and end up kind of a little bit dazed by all of the different perspectives that you get. And you know, it's not it's not an easy situation. I think that's something that slave narratives can often fall into the trap of. It's like, well, you know, if you just ended this thing, like all the problems would be over. And I think actually, like as Onion sort of uh, embodies, like being a freed person in a super racist America in 1859 is not easy. Like there is, there's no, there, there's very little future for him. Mm -hmm. And um, they're on the cusp of this incredible, like world changing for them war. Um, and, and we know that, but I don't know. So I, I, it's definitely, it definitely felt a lot more contemporary and timely than some of these other, some of like Antebellum, which, uh, which seems to be really a little bit more of like a, a horror fantasy uh, type of thing, right? Yeah. Uh, this is this is a lot more. It's almost arch. It's it's like we all know this is bad, but this is just how the world works right now, and that that kind of made sense to me just based on where we are now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, there's a really fascinating profile of Ethan Hawke that was written, I think, by John Lahr, kind of with this show as the peg. And something I have only seen a little bit of of the show, but but something that, that the profile gets at that I thought was really interesting was the particular perspective of a staunch abolitionist like John Brown, and that it was coming from such a place of religious fervor that in some senses he was not trying to save black people in America, because to his mind, they were already saved. What he was trying to do in ending slavery was save the white person's soul who was the slave owner. And I think that that's such a tricky thing to thread from our moral perspective, from, or I mean, some of our moral perspectives from 2020. And yet, I think the way that, that Hawk commits to the performance and the characterization, you see both the limits of his vision, as you call it, Sonia, I think quite aptly, 
and the grandness of it at the same time and the correctness of it at the same time the the overarching correctness of it even if there is some sort of nuance to where his belief is sourced from i guess i mean there's one very striking moment where you know, one of the reasons that, like, Frederick Douglass is a character played by David Diggs, and it's a very, like, farcical performance. I'd be very, I'm very curious to see how people respond to this performance, because I was not sure how I felt. Um, but at some point, you know, Frederick Douglass and other abolitionists are like, you really want a bloodshed, and that's not, like, something that we're, like, looking forward to. And Ethan Hawke is like, the North and the South have to bleed for the sin. Like, that, like, and it's interesting that he even frames it that way, that it's not the South's problem. Like, he sees it as the country. He sees that the North benefits from it, too. And he thinks that the entire American white population, as you say, Richard, like, needs to suffer. It's a very, it's a very intense vision. Yeah. I'm really excited for the, like, a lot of what you're talking about, but also just the idea of this towering Ethan Hawke performance, because I feel like he's been such a major actor for 30 years. Like He's been around forever and has given like such a wide variety of performances. But I feel like in the last couple of years, he's like leaned into like being middle aged. Like he had this, you know, amazing naturalist like boyhood performance. And, and this seems like such a departure from that. Um, it's he's so interesting just to watch him evolve these last couple of years. I, I love him. I, I'm, I feel like I'm, I feel like briefly sort of obsessed with him. I mean, I don't know, maybe, I'm, maybe I've always been obsessed with him. But uh, he said on on his Instagram that he originally was like, "Oh, like Jeff Daniels should play this part," and then he was like, "I'm old enough to play this part," yeah. <laughs> and, and I do think that's an interesting. Uh, he, he's using his age, um, and yeah. there's an interesting for for this like Gen X heartthrob. There's something so interesting about seeing him do that. Yeah, I really recommend uh, to people listening, if they haven't, to read the New Yorker profile because it it gets exactly what you, you two are talking about in terms of like the evolution of him as an actor and how he's always been a serious actor, even when he's done un, you know unserious things for money or whatever. But there has been since his childhood, given who he, his parents are, like this artistic hunger, I guess, that the piece makes a compelling case for that hunger sort of eventually aligned with the fervor of John Brown, you know, and mm. and I think it's really interesting to see an artist approaching someone else from a very different historical era and finding at least a kind of common, you know, vague passion, I guess. Oh, and something interesting is his um, his wife, Ryan, is another executive producer um, and his daughter, Maya, is in is in the series in the fifth episode. Hey, uh, Maya, who is, uh, what, Stranger Things is her big breakout? And then, Mm -hmm, yeah, also mm -hmm. in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, she, I mean, that's a a slightly separate topic, but she is such a perfect combination of Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke's faces that you, like, can't stop looking at her. (laughs) She... it's perfect, yeah. Yeah, Jack Quaid has a similar. What is Jack Quaid on right now that I saw him in? The, like, boys. the boys. Oh, boys, yeah, and he he looks just like Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan mashed together. It's <laughs> he looks crazy. like you put him in the face mash app. I it's know. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's we'll have a whole spin off episode about just like celebrity, <laughs> famous celebrity children who look like their parents. And uh, and Uma Thurman uh, is in the War with Grandpa that's out this week. Oh. So everyone's is that, working. Is that one of those exclusively in theaters releases that I keep popping? It's up only playing in my house. Congratulations, Richard. Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now we're about to launch our first ever universe expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation.
This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, they have a film collection for performers we love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there. Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Little Goldmen. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Little Goldmen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Mubi.com slash little gold men. Um, well, speaking of things that still are on your small screen, I would, we're moving into what's now becoming the Netflix portion of our show because every week uh, Netflix <laughs> has a ton of stuff coming out and often are the only ones who have it. Um, but Richard, I don't know if this is what Netflix wants to talking about the most, but what my Twitter feed is talking about the most is Emily in Paris, mm. which you reviewed. And I feel like you really picked it out of the pile. You were like, hey, this show is going to be a thing that people are going to want to talk about. Um, why? Why did you know that it was going to drive everybody I know crazy, but also they can't stop watching it? Well, because it scratches a particular itch that some of us are plagued by ever since we first laid eyes on Carrie Bradshaw. You know, like it, <laughs> it, it I think when I tried to review it, I, I, I don't know if I succeeded, but I, I tried to be careful about acknowledging like, yes, the show like has a very limited worldview and this is a problem and this is bad. And like and, and, and I see all that. And yet something about it still you know, satisfies some sort of dark urge within me to see like fancy clothes and like someone teetering on high heels through a nice city, you know, like Mm -hmm. that is still kind of basely appealing to me. And it seems to have, that seems to have that in that intuition of mine or whatever seems to have borne out in that, like a lot of people, and maybe it's just who I follow, but like a lot of people online seem to be kind of into the show or, or into hating the show or into loving the show or unironically loving it or ironically loving it, you know? And I think it, it just, because it's from Darren Starr who made, you know, created Sex in the City uh, and Younger and a number of other things, like it has that, um, that pedigree that makes it that much more watchable um, more than a sort of pale imitator of Sex and the City, you know, back in the day, Lipstick Jungle or Cashmere Mafia or any of the myriad things since. Cashmere Mafia. Yeah. My Remember God. They, those two shows came out in the same year. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. You know, and Lily Collins is the lead as the titular Emily in the titular city um, is, is charming as, as she needs to be. The men are handsome, but not like, you know, they do the Sex and City thing where the guys are like, they have a little wear and tear to them in a way that that, and that kind of adds to the appeal. They're not like, um, you know, the sort of shining hunks of other TV shows. And uh, Paris looks great. It was mostly filmed on location uh, about, I think, 18 months ago or thereabouts. Um, And it was supposed to be on the Paramount Network and then they dumped it to Netflix. And I think it's been anecdotally enough, a big enough success that I'll be curious to know if or to see if they get the band back together and and do a season two in Paris, um, because it ends on a cliffhanger that I would like to see uh, resolved, despite my many qualms with a lot of the show's (laughs) optics and everything. I've been trying to figure out if Emily in Paris is just like a darling of the media types that we follow on, that we all follow on Twitter, or if it's actually permeating like general audiences. Cause I don't, I haven't talked to anyone sort of in the quote unquote real world, if you want to call it that, who's watching the show. So I don't know. I don't know if this is like a Twitter echo chamber. I mean, it it is dominating my Twitter echo chamber, but I don't know if it's like a genuine hit. And since Netflix won't ever tell us, it's just, you know, it's a question. Is, has it shown up in their uh, like top 10 thing that they let people see now? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I haven't looked. We can do some fact check, live fact checking. Yeah. Um, But I don't know why it wouldn't, right? Like, doesn't it feel like, you know, the kind of escapism? Like, I mean, I know you had a really different vibe about it, but, you know, you think of something that's like sort of fluffy and it's like a chance to like think about something else and... You know, Sex and the City reruns, like, presumably still do really well on HBO Go. Like, it, it feels like it fits the formula in some way that that normal people would want to watch it more than, like, 
you know, like, did they watch Roma yeah. on Netflix? Probably not. Are they watching Emily in Paris? Probably. Yeah. It should have been Emily in, in Roma. Um, <laughs> yes. So, okay, this is an interesting section of, of the country right now. I mean, who knows how, where these numbers come from, really? Right, if they're and real. Maybe I'm being yeah. served a different... But number one is American Murder, uh, which is a chilling, actually interestingly executed documentary about an American murder. Number two is Emily in Paris. Three mm. is the final season of Schitt's Creek, which finally got added to Netflix early. Mm-hmm. Four is Ratchet. And then five is Evil, the CBS All Access show, that is, or CBS show that is <laughs> yeah. now, they're putting it on Netflix to drum up more attention for the show so it can go back to CBS All Access or whatever. And that's a great show. People should watch it. I'm glad people are. Um, but yeah, so they're Emily Paris at um, Duh. The Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Joanna, you had another Netflix show that uh, you wanted to get into. That has has it, is it has it debuted enough to be in the top five, or is it still to come? Haunting no, Bly Manor. No, uh, October 9th is when it drops. Okay, it, so Haunting of Bly Manor, which is um, sort of the follow up series to Haunting of Hill House, which was a huge Netflix spooky season hit. And this is ostensibly from Mike Flanagan, but my understanding is that he was, like, less directly involved. So it's sort of like a franchising-esque... Uh, Mike Flanagan, director of Doctor Sleep? Right. right um, okay. And was it Gerald's Game? Is that what it's called? Yep. Gerard's Game? Yep. Yeah. Uh, like, really, I think Mike has, like, a really... I mean, his... Uh, he also did this movie I love called Oculus. He um he he has he's one of my favorite horror people working in horror right now because I just think he has like a smart literary take on horror. His adaptation of Stephen King I think is really smart. Um and then you know the Haunting of series is like sort of spins on classic you know creepy novels. So um, the Haunting of Hill House, uh, you know, adapted from the Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Bly Manor is based on Henry James's turn of the screw loose. Loosely, I would say, loosely based on the screw Inspi- is turned loosely. Yeah, In- inspi- inspired by <laughs> the Henry James and and another Henry James novella sort of worked in there too. Um, and sort of similar to Ryan Murphy and American Horror Story type thing, uh, he recycles some of the same actors from the first series. It's not connected plot wise. You just have some of the same actors in his like in the rep of players that he uses. So Victoria Pedretti, I think, is the main one who was great in Haunting of Hill House. Was really great in season two of You. Um, and is the, you know, the very much the lead in this season. And Carla Gugino's there and stuff like that. This felt mess- much messier to me than Haunting of Hill House. I thought Haunting of Hill House was extraordinary. I watched it twice, which I rarely ever do for a Netflix series. But I thought Bly Manor, Bly Manor just feels a lot. You feel like the drag, you know, you know that Netflix feeling sometimes where you're like, should this have been six episodes instead mm-hmm. or something like that? You feel the drag of that so much more with Bly Manor. And it just feels like the the loosely inspired by uh, aspect of how it all ends just feels like a little a little baffling to me. That being said, they're like it's still scary. There is some like really good, creepy, sexy, dramatic stuff as there often is with a turn of the screw adaptation. And Henry Thomas, who is another uh, you know transplant over from Haunting of Hill House, has I think a really good stand like a sort of a bottle episode that's just like the Henry Thomas episode um, that I thought was like really effective and creepy, but. I don't know, Richard, uh, were you more enamored of this? How did you feel about Play Manor? No, I think we're on the same page pretty much. Like, I I think that Hill House really snuck up on me because I didn't know that it was going to be such an uh, emotional-like story. Right. I I think that Flanagan, especially in Doctor Sleep, which I think is a really great movie despite a sort of messy finale, um, and Rebecca Ferguson in that movie should have gotten awards attention i think but um but he does this kind of sentimental horror yeah that is so arresting when done right and i think it was really done right in 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 hill house um in a way that you're like wait i'm crying i'm supposed to be like screaming from ghosts like but like instead i'm feeling this deep you know emotional connection to these characters i appreciate that they tried to do it again in in bly manor but the problem i think the, the real problem regardless of the adaptation or anything like that is that hill house is about a family and their original trauma and the way they spun out into life as adults still affected by that that um, single yeah. source. Yeah. Whereas this is all these, well, there's a family concerned, but there are other people, all these disparate people coming into the story. And then the show feels, oh, we need to, everyone needs to have a sort of intense backstory. And so the more the show broadens its kind of scope of tragedy, the more it becomes soapy. 
And and I think that's really kind of the the fatal flaw. I mean, I still enjoyed it and I was moved by the end. Most of the series is narrated by Carla Gugino, really working her way through a sort of North England accent. What Um, an accent. What an accent. Uh, And it's like and there's one episode where she narrates the whole thing and you're like, wow, okay. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, I think she pulls it off. But um, but, you know, so I still there were still moments where that kind of Flanaganese really um, got got moving and really connected. But I think it does also suffer from the fact that, like you said, Joanna, he was not as authorial over this as he was over season one. And so it just feels like a kind of a pastiche of past glory, which, you know, is a bummer. But um, but it's still, you know, if you like Hill House, it's definitely still worth um, checking out. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think they try to make this. Yeah, I always like to describe Haunting of Hill House to people who haven't seen it as like parenthood, but make it spooky. It's sort of like <laughs> adult drama, but with with ghosts. This is um, ghosts. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is ghosts. <laughs> but um, but yeah, Blind Manor is is you're right. It's like trying to work that from about five different angles. It's not like cohesive. There is sort of a love story at the center of of this. I think that's sort of the anchor that they were going for but it I don't think it it is uh as successful and yeah I think I think genuinely Mike Flanagan was working on Dr. Sleep while this was being put together and so he was just more supervisory than he had been in the past and I think that's really evident that heart is not as clearly sort of beating at the center of it um I did want to call out one other member of the cast well two others I guess Ro Coley who um I know best from iZombie, who is just one of the, like, warmest, loveliest presence. I just, I love watching him on screen. He's, it's like warm caramel all the time, and and it's just delightful. And then um, Tania Miller, who plays the, like, housekeeper, she also has a standalone episode that I think is, like, um, even more so than the Henry Thomas episode, I think is the jewel in the crown of, of the season. So, um, yeah, that yeah. episode is great, and she's terrific. And I mean, it, it may, that episode maybe suffers in some comparison, I think, accidentally to Castle a Rock? similar, yeah. a, 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 a similarly structured episode of Watchmen. Oh, Watchmen. Um, yes, yes. Where, yes. yeah, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But, um, but no, as a scene, but there, that's the thing is there is, there are these moments of like great acting and great artistry. Um, it just, these are like chunky morsels floating in a sort of thin soup. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Oh, great description. <laughs> but a pro- like a sort of protoplasmy ectoplasm soup. Is it floating in a cauldron being like stirred by yeah. Ooh, yeah, like, yeah, there you go. Um yeah. yeah, and I mean I think I think the the vibe of Turn of the Screw is much more like unnerving and unsettling um like in its initial form than than Haunting of Hill House which is like straight up scary if that makes uh, a, a distinction makes sense anyway I, not to do uh, not to steal your job from you Katie but like mm-hmm. the the it, you know to transition to the next thing we want to talk about I just want to say that I think it's interesting that they are trying to like this is a like a franchise um, which you know I referenced American Horror Story before this isn't the first time that like someone has tried to like sort of franchise an anthology series um, at all obviously but I just think that this is a really um, interesting version of it and I can't does like Netflix have a lot of franchise anthologies? I don't think so, right? I don't know. Nothing's coming to mind. I can't think of any off the top. I mean, Stranger Things, sort of. Like, we thought that was what it was going to be, and then it but wound up being that's more the same cast series. And on, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't think... I think this is them kind of trying to get into the franchise game, and I'm wondering how much that will change. You know, we're about to talk about sort of Netflix and cancellations, and I'm wondering how much, like, the guaranteed branding, you know, the the, the benefit of having a, an anthology franchise is that you have something to sell to the the audiences who liked Haunting of Hill House. Okay, this is from, from the main of Haunting of Hill House, Bly Manor, you know what I mean? And um, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious of if that's effective. And you have no obligation to like continue a story. You can just start over. Right, right. Because I think the thing about the cancellations right now, to to again stomp on your territory, Katie, is that uh, a couple of like Glow and Teenage Bounty Hunters, which were both recently canceled, just yesterday canceled by Netflix. They Netflix actually reversed the season four renewal of Glow and then right. decided to cancel it. Is that both of those shows were like continuing? There was still a plot. Fans were invested in like where it was going to go next. It ended on a cliffhanger. Uh, 
Um, so maybe if you have a franchise, if you have an anthology, it's a little bit more flexible for them. They can just be like, yeah, actually, we're just going to pull the plug That's here. a great point. Yeah. And I mean, uh, the my main takeaway from the Netflix cancellation discussion yesterday, which we're about to have now, uh, is I was like... We're having now, by the way. We're, I was just going to jump in, in and say, let's talk about cancellations. <laughs> we are having the conversation. This is it. This is it. Um, is, you know, my, my friend Kim Renfro, who writes for Insider, put together a list of like every single canceled Netflix show, original series. And it's just sort of like, you know, networks cancel shows all the time, but it's just like, it feels really damning. And there's long been discussion of, you know, two seasons and that's it for Netflix or, you know, there with, with few exceptions. When you try to think of like, what are the ongoing hits for Netflix? You know, there used to be like, oh, House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, like whatever it is. Um, Stranger Things is obviously a hit for them right now. But then like, you know, there aren't a ton of other things that come to mind in terms of like, this is something we can expect to come back again from Netflix the following year. So it just all feels much more ephemeral. So the only thing I would say, obviously, people aren't going to stop making things with Netflix because Netflix backs a dump truck of money up to your house to like, you know, let you make your TV show. But like, please spare us the cliffhangers because I don't know that you're going to get resolution. If you're making a Netflix show, don't give us a cliffhanger. That's uh, well. I yeah. mean, but what's interesting is that the cliffhanger, I was thinking about You, the Penn Badgley show, yeah. which I do, I do think that was a, a hit for Netflix and I, I expect to see it back. Yes. Um, and one of the reasons it works so well is because it is a soapy plot that does have a lot of cliffhangers. And like, I think that on one hand, you have creators like very understandably trying to draw in viewers with these twists and turns. I mean, uh, the marathon watching model really rewards like big twists, roller coaster emotions, like end it with a big button. And I think it's, it, it must be very difficult, you know, like like we know with BoJack Horseman that Raph Bob Waxberg asked them to tell him when the cancellation was coming so that he could end the series. Right, yeah. um, and, and I sort of wonder, like, you know, how many other creators get to get to ask that or get to be in that position. And clearly, you know, Glow was planning to end with season four. That was going to be its final episode. And then something about corona, the pandemic, um, that's the excuse they're using for canceling it faster. But I think it puts creators in a really difficult position. I think that and it's interesting to see the downside because the dump truck of money and the uh, the freedom has been long what Netflix has offered to creators. It's like, come to us, like we are going to make this easy. Uh, but but they can still pull the rug out from under you. And uh, that's probably pretty frustrating. What is the reason they gave for canceling? I mean, I know it was the pandemic, but like, why didn't they just want to wait? Like, it, it doesn't seem like it's that expensive compared. I was just like looking through, like they canceled Marco Polo. Like, obviously that cost a fortune. Like, was there a reason other than just like, eh, we're done? My guess is that they were holding on to some sets or some space that they didn't want to pay mm. for anymore. Yeah. They just realized it was going to be delayed for even longer than they thought. And at some point, the cost outweighed the benefit for them. Right. And Glow, Glow was, a, a, was critically successful and, uh, and well-liked well by the people who were into it. But I wouldn't say it was a huge hit for Netflix. Sure. So, uh, uh, maybe that's part of their, you know, I, I do think probably the algorithm just gives them numbers. <laughs> um, they have very good statistics. <laughs> the glowing very eye at the center of the offices <laughs> on Sunset. Yeah. They are. They're very, they're very like, um, I don't know if you guys listened to the uh, Recode Media podcast in the Land of Giants, but that was like really educational for me in terms of their coverage of Netflix. How just sort of like unemotional and that's very Silicon Valley of Netflix is about like, you know, I, I could see like a John Landgraf at FX, you know, or this there's, there's a ton of history is littered with sto like stories like this, like breaking out on AMC or whatever, like things that were allowed to grow, things that weren't a hit at first. But like, you know, the creative in charge of this particular network was like, I believe in the show. We're going to invest in it. Stuff like that. Netflix is is algorithms and mercenary and they're just sort of like yes we will give you full creative control which a lot of creators love they don't have like that that overlord sort of 
giving them a lot of notes and stuff like that. But then like we as a network are not, or a streaming service are not emotionally invested in your show at all. And if the ROI doesn't make sense to us, we're going to cut you. And also like what's fascinating about the Netflix business model is that it has, I mean, I can't really fully explain it because I don't work for Recode Media, but like there is just like a, a fascinating game they're playing with the stock market in terms of like their valuation and how that's related to like their turnover on their shows and having having constant new content but also like claiming their old content as new con- it's fascinating it's all like I did not expect the stock market to come in sorry it's all I'm, like, very, I'm well, very impressed but it's all it's all like a numbers shell game for them and to a certain degree and like yes they do want the the critical acclaim yes they do want the awards like they care about that sort of cultural cachet but not to the extent that they're going to like invest in a small show that needs space to grow uh, in any way. And I think that the kind of the bitter irony of that is, well, on the one hand, you have a lot of people for whom Netflix is just TV in the same way that Facebook is just the internet for many people around the world. Mm. And so they they become that much more invested in the shows. They're paying a subscription fee like you wouldn't be on on like a broadcast network. And so those networks are like, well, they canceled it, but what control do I have? But in this case, the user is directly paying into the system and thus for the content they want in theory. But the other thing is that Netflix has been good, as Dan Levy pointed out shortly after Schitt's Creek, like won every single Emmy. That the success of Schitt's Creek, and that was Pop TV and CBC really cultivating that show, was that it was allowed to build. And Netflix was a huge component in that, as it was for Breaking mm-hmm. Bad, as it was mm-hmm. for Walking Dead, as it might be for Evil and many other shows. And so that is so apparent with other people's property right. in terms of television. And yet they're much more dispassionate, seemingly, about their own stuff, which is a, a kind of a very kind of foundational disconnect that. Um, it will be curious to see evolve uh, in whatever form that takes. Although they are, of course, doing the, the Crown spinoff, Fergie in London. So we. Oh, we, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Also, an Emily and Paris spinoff, right? They meet in the middle, both, Fergie yes, and Emily. Yeah. It, does, it sounds like a merged acquisition. Mm-hmm. It sounds great. Emma, yeah. Emily and Fergie in the channel. Yeah. <laughs> and and Lindsay Lohan is playing Fergie right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, thank God. Well, she was Wait, born to play. We should pitch this. Yeah, cut this out of the show. We got some money to make off of this. But yeah, I mean, like, the. I guess the question is, and maybe this is just not at all how people watch TV anymore, but the question is, will Netflix users start to feel burnt, start to feel like, wait, I was watching that, sort of, uh, or Hmm. or hesitant to invest in a Netflix show if there's just not going to be any resolution? Or do people just, like, especially on Netflix... I feel, you know, we do this for a living and I feel like a goldfish often where I'm like, I want, you know, I had to watch 10 episodes of a thing because it's going to drop in a binge and I need to have all my like work ready for it and stuff like that. And then the next season comes along and I'm like, what the heck happened at any given moment on, on, (laughs) I have no memory of this show you're telling me I watched all of dead to me, you know what I mean? And that's why they like, you know, every show, every Netflix show I feel like now comes with like a five-minute recap video at the beginning of the season to be like, previously on, this is the entire season, because you don't remember at all, because you're jamming so much content in your eyeballs and you're not retaining stuff week to week. And so, like, then maybe people people aren't, like, waiting around for the resolution to, you know, whatever show it is that got canceled. They're like, oh, Teenage Bounty Hunters, I was kind of into that. But, like, are they going to, you know, is it going to be feel the same way as if, you know, they pulled the plug on in the middle of Breaking Bad or something like that, you know? Oh, Jesus Christ. Mm. I did see that Amazon Prime's The Boys has had like insane viewership, has been posting some have some ridiculous numbers. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't know where these numbers ever come from, but um, they've been doing season two weekly yeah. and it's apparently been really working in terms of viewer retention, even though people are also like losing their minds a little because they want the entire series. And it is a very, very, very easy to to uh, consume show in that way. Um but yeah, I mean, but Amazon Prime is like $130, you know, a year. I don't know. Like, but I, you can I, get I, I, your toilet paper delivered to you also. <laughs> it is the strangest I combination of art and commerce. It is, it is very interesting thinking about, I mean, I have a piece coming out about this uh, eventually in the magazine, but just like the, the decisions consumers who are like really, like some of them very stricken by the pandemic right now, um, the decisions that consumers are making about their entertainment really interest me because they have a lot of different options right now, uh, a lot of different monthly or yearly fees, and 
as as you say, Joanna, like Netflix has to make sure they're serving their consumers even as they're kind of kind of disempowering them because once you're subscribed, you really have no power anymore uh, mm-hmm. at Netflix. Like, yeah, it's interesting. On the one hand, um, I'm not against binge culture. I just like maybe in my like, uh, you know, uh, elder millennial slash Gen X way, like really fondly miss that everyone watching something week to week and discussing it slowly and chewing it over slowly. And I think it's been really interesting that Amazon Prime has sort of like been in and out of experimenting with this because uh, they did it with the Romanoffs as well. You know, and I think it's interesting that The Boys was such a hit for them season one. So they're like, let's try it with an already engaged audience and see if week to week will like go for them and stuff like that. Um, but I've been watching, you know, I've been watching the back half of Lovecraft Country on HBO, um, which is rolling, obviously rolling out week to week. And that is a show that, you know, I think most of us on this podcast feel kind of mixed about, but I was like watching it. I was watching the latest episode. I was like, this really should have been a binge. I'm not usually in favor of the binge, but I'm like, I think this is like, this is a perfect kind of show for a binge because there's a lot of detail you have to retain week to week. And the first half is like really getting its feet under it in a way that the back half has. And so like, we're so much more forgiving. We're so much more ready to be like, just get through the first four episodes. And then it really (laughs) figures itself out which people are so tired of hearing. But I was like, you know, I, I think Lovecraft Country has, an, has like a pretty solid audience. It's not like really suffering. But I was like, if this had been a binge, people been people would have lost their minds about the whole thing. So yeah, I think I think it really depends on the show. And yeah. I think it also depends on like the the way people are sort of thinking on mass. Like, I, you know, I, I've noticed like The Vow, the Nexium documentary on HBO, like that's been... I feel like that's had like steady growth and attention, you know, yeah. and it's been coming out week to week. And I think that right now that can provide a really uh, valuable structure to people's week in some way, you know, at least like, oh, I have this thing to look forward to on yeah. Sunday night, you yeah. know, where we there's so little to look forward to right now. And I think that can be really helpful. But I think you're right. Also, Joanna, there have been shows that I've watched recently or in the past couple of years where I'm like, I would have absorb this much better had it all been available to me at once you know um and so i think that there just needs to be a bit more creative intuitive thinking less business thinking i mean that's obviously important to keep the lights on but more on the creative side of things to really look at the product and say okay this is how it should be structured and released and and i don't know how much of that at least from a viewer perspective is actually happening right now Well, after all this time uh, spent talking about the algorithm that controls our lives in one way, um, it feels like a great time to talk about the piece that you wrote, Sonia, for the 10th anniversary of The Social Network, um, which is a movie that I still love. And I think I still love even after reading your piece, which I think (laughs) calls it to task for a lot of things. Like, I think in a lot of ways, we've been like, wow, The Social Network really came out. We couldn't have seen what happened with Facebook. And you acknowledge that in your piece while also bringing up a lot of things that existed in 2010 and existed in Mark Zuckerberg and in Facebook itself that... Uh, that it could have addressed and didn't and, you know, kind of lost the plot on this thing that has like only since gone on to further wreck our society. Um, so do you want to do you want to just kind of uh, rewatching it for this? Like, what was it that got under your skin the most about the social network? I think I actually appreciated it more rewatching it than I did when I first watched it in 20. It was probably 2011 when I got around to watching it. Because I think uh, I, I, I talk a little bit about my own context in the piece and how I was like definitely addicted to Facebook uh, in 2010 um, and really expected the movie to be about what using Facebook felt like, which was a very big part of my life. And uh, rewatching it, I was like, oh, like I sort of understand now why why the movie is about these uh, sort of inscrutable, uh, the, the inscrutable tech genius that is Mark Zuckerberg, who was so young when this, uh, when he created this thing that completely changed the world. But I, I guess the thing that really, it's always sort of, I've always sort of struggled with is just what ended up changing about Mark Zuckerberg's actual story in order to make it work for the Sorkin script, uh, for the Aaron Sorkin script in the movie. You know, like, he's framed as this, like, horny, resentful, misogynist nerd. But he was dating the same woman, like, the entire time that after he created Face Mash and Facebook and then went on to become a billionaire. I think the movie is kind of 
a little incorrect about the real Mark Zuckerberg. And that doesn't necessarily matter. I think it mattered more to me in the past because I was just like, what am I learning from this? I think now I sort of see it, I'm like, this is a story about, you know, about ego and about being a person that has opportunities and not doing the bad thing. But I think the movie sort of loses the plot a little bit when it ends with Zuckerberg and um, Eduardo Severin's relationship kind of disintegrating. And it's kind of like, maybe Mark Zuckerberg isn't an asshole, like he's just lonely. And I sort of feel like my takeaway is like, no, I don't, I don't think that that's what happened. I think that he kind of got everything he wanted. He has, he, 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 he was dating someone. He got the connections that he wanted to. He dropped out of Harvard. He was completely flexible. He's a billionaire. And as we've seen, like his ambition has really only grown in the time since then. And I think that there, I think the thing that I really hold against the movie, as, as well-crafted as it is, is that it doesn't seem like the people who made it used Facebook or used, like, were engaged with it as users. They were seeing it very externally, and I think Facebook is just kind of this uh, mysterious product that kind of proliferates in the background. But that, to me, that story is actually the interesting story about Facebook. And the movie ends up kind of glossing over the decision that Zuckerberg makes at the end when he breaks with Eduardo Severin's vision. Um, to me, someone who works at a publication, that's so interesting because Eduardo Severin's going, let's, uh, let's put ads on it. Let's make it like a publication. You know, we'll do like clicks per page view. And... Mark Zuckerberg and Sean Parker go to Peter Thiel, who we know who Peter Thiel is now. Like, we didn't know that in 2010, but we know who he is now. And they sell this completely different idea about, like, using the user base as a data set that you could learn something from and harvest profit from. And I think that that is actually the tragedy of Facebook. And um, the movie doesn't see it. But yeah, I'm curious what you think, Katie, because I know this is a movie that you like, and I don't mean to I don't mean to be like no one should like this movie. I just wanted to get down in writing why I struggle with it as a history of Facebook. Yeah, I mean, I think and I think you even acknowledge in your piece like it is a very likable and engaging movie. Like it it will suck you in even if you can find all these problems in it. Um I think what I still come back to and I last rewatched it maybe last year the year before um is I think the friendship between Mark Zuckerberg and Edward Severin is just just like really strong beating heart in the movie and that's something that like David Fincher movies sometimes struggle to have or sometimes don't really care about having like I care about their friendship. I care about these two people who thought they were building something together and kind of the gulf that came between them. And I think as much as it like doesn't really grapple with like the monster that Peter Thiel probably was at the time and we now know like what harm he was doing, the way that he and um, Sean Parker drive this wedge between this friendship and like something that was built off of like being in college and doing something together late at night becomes this like money sucking Silicon Valley thing I think is really powerful and like the way that you watch Mark and Eduardo, like, try to connect a couple times before, you know, the famous scene where Eduardo, like, screams Mark and slams his computer in the office, which I love. Um, <laughs> I, I, I care about that. And I think that even though he's an asshole and gets everything that he wants, like, kind of the brokenness in it, like, he's lonely and he's an asshole and he's lonely because he's an asshole and Facebook is only making him lonelier. And I, I think of that ending shot of him in the lawyer's office refreshing Rooney Mara's feed and like wanting a connection and not being able to get it um, does sum up a lot of the Facebook experience for me, even if, as you're saying, like it just gets like it ignores so much else of what Facebook was then and is now. Well, my read on I would say I think no one could argue with Sonia's um, assessment that like people who made this movie maybe don't really understand Facebook. I, you only have to like watch one single second of the newsroom to know that Aaron Sorkin <laughs> does not understand how the internet works. I remember Aaron Sorkin joining Facebook to do research for this movie like very vividly. It was probably in like 2008, and everyone was like, "What is happening?" But I, but I think something that he does get profoundly right is this. Um, is, he tapped into something before I understood it as a threat, which is this like the vulnerable and I don't mean this in like a really empathetic way necessarily population of like lonely white men uh, you know who feel small in the quote unquote real world and the way for them to feel tall is online and Mark Zuckerberg with Jesse Eisenberg's incredible performance as this epitome of someone who just like 
fashions himself into a god out of an experience that feels, you know, smaller than what he thinks he deserves. And so when you think of like the 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 lonely white men who were radicalized by the alt-right or like, you know, whatever it is, and this idea of sacrificing real world connections that you have to someone like Eduardo Severin for chasing this like digital glory, I think it really gets to the heart of of an issue that the internet has presented in our society in a way that is, you're right, Sonia, completely divorced from the reality of uh, actual Facebook and actual Mark Zuckerberg, but as a larger critique of what this has done or is doing to us, um, I think it's really effective. Yeah, I think for me, the movie just has a problem of perspective in terms of when it came out. You know, Facebook had really only been around for, what, six years at that point, in a major way. And so it installed this kind of origin story that a lot of people, because the social network was a a widely seen movie and and continues to be sort of have used as the basis of their understanding of Facebook. And I think that it's that, that, that legacy now stands on kind of like not the right ground. And, and, and the movie was made with this idea in 2010 of like, Look at this like young generation that's like so disconnected from one another and like making billions of dollars in tech. But like, do they really do they know what love is? And like, all you know, this kind of very <laughs> rudimentary stuff. And nowhere in that movie, which I do like, do you get the perspective of, oh, like fucking whole country's elections are going to be compromised by this thing. And like your aunt is going to be on it. Your grandmother's going to be on it. The whole world is going to be on this thing. And I don't think in Sorkin's kind of, you know, sneering sort of pejorative view of, of tech and the internet and, 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 you know, as, as a kind of, I think he sort of imagined it as a replacement for something instead of what it was, which was create taking over everything, you know? Um, and, and, and I think that the, what what the cautionary tale for me of the social network is is just wait don't rush to tell the story so quickly because we're still very much i mean at the time it was still very much in its infancy and i think you see a lot of that with the, like oh we have to tell the the gawker story right now or we have to tell this story you know and it's like but we don't really we're still in it and and i think that the, the rush to kind of enshrine things in lore um can create a movie that 10 years out looks kind of small and like it missed the whole thing whizzing above its head that's funny because like i i both agree and like disagree in terms of i think i think it does seem naive almost like you watch social network now and it seems naive because it doesn't understand how far this is all gonna go but then as as like a time capsule as a relic of like how you know how at least aaron zorkin understood (laughs) facebook or social networks or social media at the time i still think it it is interesting and has value and it makes it almost more chilling like katie i think i watched it last uh, last year, uh, or maybe even earlier this year, and it's just like it, it's it's creepier as the years go on. It just becomes creepier and creepier in a way that I think is interesting. I, I mean, I think that the issue I I take with I mean, it's definitely in 2010, like we did not anticipate what Facebook was going to be able to do over the next decade, um, but people still had raised concerns about Facebook, and I I definitely don't think. I don't think Sorkin was looking at it from that perspective. He seems very dazzled to me. He seems dazzled to me by the young tech genius, by the 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 Harvard. I mean, and 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 Sorkin is such an elite name dropper in all of his all of his work. Um, and I actually think he does a great job of getting into his own his own obsession with uh, with the elite, like the Harvard that he and Fincher create is a very like, it's a very approachable place because it's very banal. It's just, it's just college, but everyone is walking around all the time going, oh yeah, and we're at Harvard, <laughs> which I think, I think if, if any of you have visited that campus or, or know Harvard students, I think that is kind of the experience. It like, does seem accurate. It's, it's very, it's very accurate. I think um, that kind of, there's sort of like this doubleness to it where everything is both incredibly boring but also very self-serious and very self-important. And I I think he also in other Sorkin 
movies or or TV shows, the Mark Zuckerberg character as played by Jesse Eisenberg would have been heroic for like standing up and like taking everyone down with something cutting or, you know, his statistics dropping his 22,000, <laughs> like whatever it is. Um, and, and I think he's like, well, actually, this guy is not so great. Like, and, and here's why it's not so great. I think that's very interesting. And I, I think there's something to your to your point, Joanna, about that guy. I think Sorkin is really interested in that guy. And there's something about writing towards that experience that he's very good at. But at the same time, I, I mean, remember, I mean, and this is, I was reminded of this uh, on the internet a few a few weeks ago. Um, Sorkin apologized to Mark Zuckerberg at the Golden Globes for being too mean to him, uh, saying um, he said the te- he was a visionary and an incredible altruist. Um, and then in 2019, uh, he kind of walked that back too and he wrote this sort of scolding like kind of brotherly like he's still dazzled by Zuckerberg but wrote the sort of like I don't think you understand that your product I don't think you mean for your product to destroy free speech or like to destroy truth is the way he puts it to assault truth but I think that you should think about that and then he and he ends this column in the New York Times with if I had known you had felt that way I'd have had the Winklevoss twins invent Facebook and you do sort of feel like Sorkin has no idea what's going on and so I mean so to me this is just a little bit I think it's very it's very Hollywood it's a very Hollywood take on on the creation of this thing it's a very Hollywood take on tech but you know Zadie Smith when when the movie came out wrote this like really graceful takedown of it that I will you know never be able to really emulate but she describes it as a movie about 2.0 people written and created by 1.0 people and I do think that that's such a it really was this like translation of this moment that a lot of people didn't understand even in 2010. I mean, I was like a Facebook native, you know, and I wanted the movie about the Facebook experience, but a lot of other people were like, who is this guy and what is this thing that is Mm -hmm. taking over our lives? Can someone just explain it to me? So I don't necessarily blame, I don't necessarily blame him for all of that. I do think it comes off more and more laughably naive, though, as you move forward, um, as we move forward in time. I think like 15 years from now, when Facebook has like actually destroyed democracy, we're going to be like, this is a really weird movie. Or when we've prevented (laughs) Facebook from destroying democracy by destroying Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Katie, I really, I really admire your efforts and optimism. I think I'm feeling optimistic these days, trying to spread it. I think what we're all saying is that we... We want Aaron Sorkin to make The Social Network 2, Eduardo's Revenge. (laughs) (laughs) After Mark Zuckerberg has destroyed democracy, Eduardo Severin comes in and saves it. He wouldn't. And And then we'll get Newsroom Season 2. Or or 4, I mean 4, 4. Jesus. It all just felt like one long, big season the first time around. Something I didn't talk about in the piece, but is just a side note. You know that trailer was parodied so many times, and the Twitter parody of the Social Network trailer, the Twit Network. Um, I mean, it wasn't made by Twitter; it's just about Twitter. Is one of my favorite like parodies of any trailer ever because it's really like shot for shot. They did their best job, and the part where uh, Eduardo comes in, like Andrew Garfield comes in and yells Mark at <laughs> at Jesse Eisenberg um, in the Twit Network. The guy comes in and just yells hashtags and then throws down like a pile of binders on a table. (laughs) And I always think about that as just like the peak parody of of that moment in time. Hashtags! That does it for this week's show. Uh, you can find us at VanityFair.com where you can find Sonia writing about the Good Lord Bird and the Social Network, Richard writing about Emily in Paris, and probably some other things uh, coming out this week that we didn't even get to. Um, and Joanna writing about lots of things too. And me, I'm there too, but, you know, less visible behind the scenes. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. At Paris. I'm just I'm just in Paris. There you go. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> good, good get. Uh, Joanna. In the channel. <laughs> and Sonia. I'm going to be in London for this one. (laughs) Well, follow them all on Twitter the way that you probably already follow them on Twitter. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best title for our spinoff podcast about the internet goes to Sonia Soraya. Hashtags! Hashtags!